Welcome to Street Smart Success, where real estate entrepreneurs share their backgrounds, experience, and lessons learned. This is Roger Becker, your host. Learn with me as I drill down with guests about their paths to success and what they're doing now. So today on President's Day of all days, I am interviewing a, uh, a fantastic guest who has a kind of a 360 degree view on real estate, meaning he's not just in an asset class, he's, he's uh, spread across a number of different asset classes and also is involved on the property management side. And it's a fairly sizable organization compared to, you know, a guy working on his own, which is absolutely nothing wrong with that or a smaller company. So, um, and has a very interesting perspective too about risk. And so that's why I'm so excited to enter interview a partner at Greenleaf. He is Dave Codre. Dave, welcome to Street Smart Success. All right. Thank you, Roger. Excited to be here and uh, and definitely look forward to the conversation that we're about to have here. Yeah, I am too. I am too. And thanks for, uh, I don't know, maybe you work today, but I uh, I appreciate you taking the time regardless. So, so Dave, tell me this. I know that you're in uh, the Peachtree State. I don't know. That, is that what they call Atlanta, Georgia, Peachtree? The Peach State. Oh, the yes. Peach State. Okay. Not Peachtree. We have a lot of those roads, though. Almost every other road is called Peachtree out here in Atlanta. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I've, I've been on them when I've been there for business. So here's my question for starters. Where are you Like, where are you from? Are you from Georgia or are you from somewhere else? No, I moved to Georgia. Or I started a business in Georgia around 2008, but I grew up in Pennsylvania. So fairly rural area north of uh, Philadelphia. North of- and then I've been working my way south ever since then and ended up here in Atlanta. Which some days, even when it's like 40 or 50 degrees, I feel like it's a little too cold still. But yeah, I, you know, your body adapts. You know, I've been in, uh, I'm in Portland right now, even though I don't live here full time. And it has been in the high 30s in the morning. And now that it's gone up, t- it was, this morning was 48 and it feels like it's like 70. I mean, your body regulates very, very quickly and, and yeah. gets acclimated to whatever the weather is, <laughs> wherever the heck you are. Um, okay. Uh, and I think you went to school in DC, correct? Do you go to GWU? Yep, I did. And that was, that was kind of my middle ground from, uh, moving down from Pennsylvania. I was in DC for quite a few years. Uh, I went to school there at George Washington and then I did business school there too. And, and I lived there for a while when I worked with, uh, Deloitte Consulting. So that was really my first, my first gig or first employment was with the, the consulting side of the world. And then, uh, I, after I left there, I started Greenleaf. I see. Down here in Atlanta. I see. Irrelevant detail, uh, but my first cousin was the um, valedictorian at GWU. And uh, to this day is infinitely more successful than I am. I, I was not the valedictorian. I don't think I was even close. <laughs> <laughs> that was not happening. So. You and me both. And I would have never even been welcome in the front door of GWU. But, it, but, but at least you were. <laughs> Okay. How, how did you get into the, the world of real estate? Uh, it's something... I mean, I've been fascinated with real estate really since high school. And that's when you know my dad owned a small business in the town that we grew up in. And we were always kind of... He had a, a big warehouse building. We were always like doing random things on it. And he was kind of the first to introduce me to like, hey, you got to... you know People are paying rent to rent space. And I was like, okay, well, I want to 
figure out how I can make some money in that aspect too. So uh, I really started full on doing maintenance. I mean, I was buying small uh, residential buildings and I was the one that renovated all of them, did all the maintenance. And that's really how I learned learned about it and got excited about it. I still love that part to this day. You know, It's always challenging parts if you're going to actually do the maintenance. But I think it's fun. You get to see the progress and you're always... It's always neat when you buy a building, no matter what that building is, and you open up and kind of find like what problems are in there. And most of the stuff that uh, I buy with Greenleaf, we're not buying, you know, brand new class A anything. We're always looking for operational opportunities to improve an asset. So we always buy stuff that uh, is exciting to go into and see what problems you can undercover. Man, you've got the right attitude. I, I'll tell you that right now. When you started on your own, Dave, buying small residential buildings, like how small and where were they? As small as you could get, I didn't have any money. So it's like, what's the cheapest, smallest place I could buy because I don't have any money? I think the first, you know, I was buying single townhomes and I could pick those up for like fifteen or twenty thousand dollars. So not anymore. That so I grew up in Allentown, Pennsylvania. So small town and and it had a lot of just older housing stock. I mean, some of the stuff I was buying was built in the late eighteen hundreds. Well, that so it needed some love. because okay. yeah. Okay, so that they was, needed some love. That's why they were so cheap. Okay, so it was in your hometown, made famous by Billy Joel. Yes. Yeah, everybody <laughs> knows Allentown because of that song. From that song, yes. Yeah. So how did you launch your business in Atlanta? What took you down to Atlanta and what were kind of the circumstances around starting Greenleaf? I was you know, always looking for a place where I knew that there was going to be growth. And I think if you go look at all the cities across the country, and I, and I was open to starting a business anywhere, really. I knew that's something I wanted to do in my life. I knew I wanted to do it in real estate. But I also had to pick a place like, hey, where can I go that's one, relatively affordable? Right? I was coming out of Washington, Washington DC, which is not affordable. I couldn't afford to... Especially starting a real estate business it was hard to start there because everything was so expensive. So I had to find a city that was relatively affordable, had good population growth, and also was a city that I that I like to be in. And I had traveled all over the country before and Atlanta kind of checked all three of those boxes. And, you know, late 2000s, you know, 2010 timeframe, there was a lot of cheap real estate in Atlanta. So I was like, okay, let's go to Atlanta. It, it meets those three criteria and, and we can move forwards and try and find some opportunities there. You were, I think the word is prescient. You were, uh, man, you, you, you hit the nail through the board. You were on all your assumptions were probably more correct than you even realized. I would imagine, given what's happened in the last handful of years. Yeah. And the, you know, you, the past 12 years, population in the state of Georgia has been phenomenal. A lot of the Southeast as a whole has been very strong in that. You know, when I was first making those decisions, there, were, there was no really like political understanding or, or that kind of stuff when I was thinking about going someplace. But the Southeast as a whole, uh, no matter where you're kind of at on things, is, has had strong population growth, whether it's Florida or South Carolina and I feel like, well, Texas is joining the SEC. So I don't know if they're trying to move over to be the South versus their own, you know, their own country. But, uh, but they've obviously done very well uh, too, from a growth standpoint, both business and population wise. Yes, that is, uh, that's an understatement. Did you start when you started Greenleaf? Cause I know you, you guys have, it looks like, you know, just judging by the website, it looks like you have a pretty substantial property management arm. Did, did you start it as a property management company or did you start it as, Real estate acquisitions, like how, what was the sequence? It, it was really both. I mean, we for the first property we purchased at Greenleaf, we operated it, and we've been doing that model ever since. It's 
you know, it's harder to scale if you're trying to do both of those things at the same time. You know, you kind of have competing growth patterns when you look at property management versus purely acquisitions and capital raising. Uh, but we've felt that over the years, having that boots on the ground, understanding exactly what's happening has been an important part of our success in controlling the outcome of our investments. Do you do any third-party management or is your property management team just for the properties you guys own? It's really just for our assets. I mean, when we first started, we did some property management that was external. And to this day, I mean, we still have uh, three property management clients. Uh, so it's not very big on the external side, but we've got three guys that we've managed their apartments for now for almost 10 years. I see. Uh, and it's been a good relationship. And they also understand that we're not normally a third-party uh, manager. Here's something I found really... Th- and thank you for the uh, explanation. Something I found really interesting on your site, um, just in terms of, you know, kind of weighing things I've read and heard and et cetera over the last couple of years, I've been doing the podcast for the last couple of years, is that, you know, so many people have such strong opinions, not in favor of class C. And uh, you clearly embrace it, as you've said, and by looking at your portfolio, it's like, you know, it looks like a lot of the stuff you're doing is maybe goes back to even the 60s, but certainly 70s and, and what have you. Is, is, is it that that's just where all the value is and that the reality is you just flat out know how to do it and manage to it? Is is that kind of the the view? I mean, a lot of it comes down to that. Like any in, any investment you kind of make or anytime you're doing something, it certainly helps to know how to do it. That, that's a big point of it. So all of the type of assets that we're purchasing, you know, could look at them and say they're very different, but also for the most part, we buy one and two story brick buildings. Now, there may, that may be a warehouse, that may be an apartment, but they're all fairly easy to execute an operation plan in as long as you know your team is trained and know what's going on there. So with you know classy apartments, those are predominantly exterior walk up buildings that are predominantly brick. They have angled roofs, so you don't have anything complicated where you look at a class A structure that might be four or five stories, parking garages, flat roofs, lots of interior spaces. It's a totally different type of building to operate and manage. And I think it's hard if you combine all sorts of different operational know-how into one organization. One, you either have to be very large so you can have whole divisions that can be special at parts, but at a smaller middle-sized company like you've got to you got to pick one thing that you can actually execute the class you know class C or affordable housing or you really just look at it like anything that was built from the 60s to the 70s which there's a ton of in the southeast has a consistent way that you can work on them and we we run into the same problems and really opportunities to make improvements across many assets so is it to the point because in that that probably that answers and by the way I'm not intending to, I hope I'm not coming off as being a devil's advocate. I'm intrigued by what you do and, and, and by the way, and impressed by how refined your business strategy is because I agree with you a trillion percent. It's like, I, I like the guy that's done one thing 10,000 times. I don't want to invest with the guy that's done 10,000 things once. So I, I, I get what you're talking about, specialization and in knowledge around one with an asset within an a- asset class within an asset class kind of thing. 
So, you know, the question is this, you know, I, I guess so many, I've heard so many people say, you know, with class C, you just don't know what you're getting and it's mostly the plumbing. And is it, I guess the way you just described it is, yes, that's true, but because it's all you do, you kind of know what all the variables are and therefore you, you it's the opposite. You know exactly what you're getting into within a, within yep. a range. Yeah, correct. You know, we, there's certainly a lot of plumbing issues. One of the main things in class C, I mean, this started really 2010 was going in and just putting in low flow plumbing in every, every time you would buy something that was like the go-to strategy. You could re- significantly reduce water consumption. You could have things that didn't leak. And it was like, you, you couldn't buy a affordable apartment and go in with the assumption that you wouldn't have to do that. Like that was required every single time. So it was just part of the playbook of what we did. And so we knew that cost. We knew how to execute it. And it was just, hey, we're going to buy these and we're going to keep doing these. You know, this is just required to be able to operate it. It looks like you are doing a lot of, a lot of buildings in the hundred ish number of units, maybe, maybe some less by some amount, maybe more, but by and large. Are you therefore underneath the radar of institutional dollars that they might even only play in, by the way, a class. And then the extension of that question is, are you dealing with less competition? Like Atlanta, as you know, for class A, it, you know, you've had 30, 40 bidders, maybe not today. It's the beginning of 2023, but as of a year ago, it was just like a feeding frenzy uh, and prices were just, you know, you, you could go down to a three cap you know, on a, on a core A asset. Is it the other end of the spectrum where you don't have, you just don't have nearly that level of competition and therefore you can get more opportunistic and better prices, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah. And we, we really looked at it from a co- total cost standpoint. So when I look at a deal, if we're, if we're somewhere in that, you know, three to $15 million range, we're typically outside of bigger groups that that's too small for them to buy. But it's too really too expensive for just an individual to go buy at one time, and that is that that's varied on number of units over the years of what that gets you. But it's certainly uh, the trajectory that I'm trying to go for is is avoiding large institutions and not being too small that really anyone can buy it. So on those, so that being said, like we've only bought three deals that are over twenty million dollars ever, because normally that's going to get gobbled up by a larger a larger group that does bigger deals. So then on the smaller side, that gives us, you know, a hundred apartments. That's right in kind of a sweet spot that fits that area. Yeah. And how much competition do you have for those properties when you're, when you're acquiring? Uh, most of that competition is more local buyers. So there, I mean, there's a, a good number of groups in Atlanta. I mean, Atlanta's the biggest city by, by far, you know, within a couple hundred miles of where we're at here. So there are a good number of groups that are buying stuff, but we kind of all know, you know, who one another are. So it's not, it's not as competitive as like a New York City or an LA or something like that, where there's you know, 20 million people in one place. But what have cap rates been? What are investor returns like? Like the, the greedy guy in me thinks, man, if I invest with this guy, I might be able to get, you know, 8% cash on cash, you know, as soon as the deal closes. Am I, how, how wrong am I? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, in the past two years, it's been ultra competitive. So finding anything that cash flows is, is, Significantly challenging. I think uh, overall, there's there's been a pretty big compression of cap rates between. I mean, not just cap rates coming down or up, but compression between the class A and the class C space, where we've seen a lot of people migrating to lower uh, 
credit tenants uh, chasing higher yields because the yields did become so hard to achieve. And that's why we saw a lot of value gains, especially across class B, class C assets, where those were really driven up from class A investors moving downstream to get higher yields. So I think days of, of 8% cash on cash, day one are, are gone. Those might, uh, they might come back in a little bit as people get more comfortable with uh, higher debt rates, therefore, you know, less competition, lower prices because of that. But we haven't seen any, you know, we haven't seen anything in a few years now that's been able to generate 8% cash on cash out of the door. You know, in, it's only able to get there after significant improvements in in other markets. Some of the big boom markets, but I mean, Atlanta's. I don't know if Atlanta's kind of fits that description. But markets like, for example, Dallas and Phoenix, they've seen you know prices come down. They've seen cap rate compression, and they've seen prices come down. You know, depending on who you talk to, fifteen percent all day long from the top, and maybe even twenty. Are you not seeing on C class? Are you not seeing that in Atlanta? Some, but also most of those groups. If you're going to get a ten percent discount, it's like okay, but that's probably not going to get you to eight percent cash on cash day one. Yeah, got so it. So it, it would need to be a much larger discount than that, and anything more than that, I think people are just holding because for the most part they own a pretty good position. They're getting their investment returns, so they're just going to hold that deal. I, but I think that changes as we look at people that have floating rate debt. Any deal that has that. You know their their cost of servicing that debt going up dramatically. You know they might not be in a position where they can use current cash, and they they can't get a new loan, so they will have to sell it. Exactly. You're a founder. What is, what is your role in the in the company? It's an interesting one. Sometimes it's helping out with maintenance to doing everything, but for the most part, uh, I'm looking at like what are our processes within the business of how do we execute a, a business plan, and that can be everything from execution of what our acquisition targets are to our CapEx plans to how we operate uh, the property management. I see. I'm looking at all those things and how do they integrate. So you, you're, you're a busy guy. Yes, but I like doing this stuff. And, and there's, always, there's always room, no matter... Even if you're in a cycle where there's not a lot of opportunity to buy stuff, when you're fully integrated like we are, that means we can focus on, okay, let's just improve this one process within the property management division. Let's figure out how we're going to improve this improve uh, this capex improvement project that we're doing how do we make that go smoother and work there to improve our investment returns so it's not just the buying it's always the how are we executing and the better we execute and the more cost efficiently we can do that uh, the better our investment returns are going to be overall you had alluded to earlier you know when you're talking about how cap rates have been compressed and you know people have been willing to pay more for you know tenants with maybe not as great a credit. What do your collections look like typically in, in any market cycle across that asset class? I think there's two ways of looking at that. We have, and we still have resident issues from, from the pandemic where we've had long-term non-payments. And I think that's really been in every market. And the eviction process or the, that collection process has been significantly delayed within all, I, think, I think all municipalities. Atlanta has been pretty good. We operate all the way up through North Carolina and into Tennessee. So we have overall seen solid collections. You know, our economic occupancy or the amount that's being paid into that, we're at like 97% collections, 98% collections. So, but we have in any kind of in any market, you've got some stragglers into that where they're long term not paying and, and we're going through a, 
that eviction process was now takes significantly longer than it did, say, four or five years ago. I see. What are your typical length of holds? Are you guys long-term holds or what's your general approach? Yeah, I mean, our investment philosophy is like we are trying to find opportunities to generate recurring cash flow. So that's, that is the main focus. We're not exit focused. We are, how do we take an asset and, and start building up that quarterly cash flow that comes from that? And when you do that, you increase cash flow and real estate sells at a multitude, multiple on cash flow. So you are able to increase value at that. If we're able to get a great value and sell multiple years of future cash flow, we'll take those gains and we'll do a 1031 transaction right into the next opportunity. So, But we're not set on our investment horizon with saying, hey, this is a five-year plan or a three-year plan. We go into a deal and say, what's the debt that we have? And if that's three-year debt or seven-year debt, we're going to tie our investment decisions to that debt uh, horizon. Do you guys always 1031 when you uh, dispose of an asset? For the most part, yes. Probably 90% of the time, we're going to exchange into something else. That's uh, unusual and that's, that's great. Um, I'm in another, been involved with another company for 20 years and they always, I don't think they've ever, I think they always 1031 and it's benefited me immensely. Um, but that's, yeah, it's been, it's been great for our investment group and, you know, we're focused on just long term generation of cash flow. And most of the deals, when we do do a 1031, you know, we're trying to find again another opportunity where we can add cash flow and really increase the distributions that investors are receiving from the new acquisition. Wow, that's fantastic. You know, when I heard you speak a month and a half ago or so, you were discussing with that host the risks in this environment of multifamily. And I guess what what are your views of that? And it was pretty provoking. I think the analysis of risk has kind of been pushed to the back burner when we look at our investment models for an acquisition. You know, five, six, seven years ago, there was a big difference between the risk associated with uh, whoever the tenant was in a class A versus a, a, a class C or an affordable market unit. And that's kind of been on the back burner. Collections have been really high for a long time now. And it's kind of been out of favor to say like, well, hey, what if your economic collections are only 80%? Because there's challenges in this job market or or one market segment, and we haven't seen that in so many years that I think it's that it's almost been forgotten about. But certainly, with we see the the Fed raising rates right now, I mean that's going to put in theory that puts some constraints on the economy. And our jobs report in January was phenomenal; they had five hundred thousand jobs. So it doesn't seem like that's happened quite yet. But there's certainly segments within the economy of employment that you could say, hey, these are going to face some challenges and where do those people live? And they're because of that, their payment and collections are going to be hurt because of that. So I, I think that's something that uh, certainly has to be looked at with a little more vigor when we're when really anyone's doing an investment underwriting. Example of that is we one of the recent transactions we exited was, you know, we exited a mobile home park and we exited at a very attractive cap rate. And we transitioned and purchased a government medical facility at a much higher cap rate. And if you just look at the risk of those two two types of tenants, you know, we're getting more yield from a from a medical asset than we are from a mobile home park, and the tenant risk is significantly lower. So our risk adjusted rate of return on that that kind of trade, and that was another ten thirty one we did that trade. We significantly reduced our risk and we increased our cash flow. Where was that? 
property. Uh, and, and I don't even know what government medical office. Oh, so, uh, uh, VA clinics. Uh, okay. So it's a, it's an interesting tenant. You know, there's not a whole lot of VA clinics that trade, but in North Carolina, there are a lot of them mainly because there's just a large military presence there. So we purchased a deal up in, uh, uh, up in North Carolina that was a VA medical clinic. What percent of occupancy was it? And then like, what, what was it? Or is it just basically one tenant? Well, they, they are the driving force. There's a few other tenants there, but it's a hundred percent occupied, uh, that asset. And, but it's, it's really the VA clinic is such a large, um, piece of the value there that even though they're, you know, maybe 60% of the tenant base, they're driving the value of that asset by having that lease in place. What cap rate was that purchased at? Oh, we're able to get those right at seven and a half, eight cap. How many years left on the lease? That one, I believe that one had three years left on it. So it's, it's medical, yes, but it's also government. I mean, the government, which I think is a good thing. They have the right to, I mean, the government could cancel the lease whenever they want to. So, which I think is good as a taxpayer. You're like, hey, I don't want the government to go sign it up for a hundred year lease they can never get out of. So I agree with that on how they do it. But also that, you know, that's a risk you have to assume of, you have to have a good space for them to operate their business plan, which is serving veterans in health services. I see. But you obviously felt that the likelihood was high that they would renew. Yes. Yeah, I get it. Okay. Yeah, and, and they have been there for a while and the space was built for them. So I uh, feel very good about that. But also you're just comparing what is what are my risks associated there with my risks associated with the ownership of the mobile home. You've done and are doing a lot of different asset classes. What are your, you know, kind of prognosis for the next couple of years for respectively? Like, what do you think is going to be kind of a, a, a the, the least risky, you know, moving forward? I think the least risky is real estate that has multiple uses that is owned at a good basis. So one, I mean, a lot of stuff we're looking at right now is for the most part, when we have affordable housing, it's it's in areas that also has other businesses right around it, right? So not necessarily like a mixed-use community, but there's either warehouses or some more outdated office that are there. So a lot of the opportunities we're seeing, and we're buying a deal right now that's literally across the street from an apartment building that we had owned for years. And it's a single-story uh, flex office space that's in a very good location there's no real land around there to be built out into anything. And it's just a single story brick building, lots of parking at a very attractive basis. And it's 80% occupied. So while it's not the sexiest deal around, right? It doesn't, you know, look incredible. It doesn't have this cool, uh, you know, mixed use vibe to it. There are lots of businesses that need to occupy those spaces and use them. And, and it's not really a remote work from home type tenant. So, and, and we're finding a lot of these right around apartment communities that we own and we're picking those up. Well, I think there's a lot of opportunity in that space because it is suburban. It's kind of where a lot of the population lives and it's at a very good basis right now compared to what you would have to rebuild something for. So you 1031, do you guys do, have you ever raised a fund or have you considered that or is it deal to deal? Yeah, everything is just deal by deal. We've had the, really the same format since we started and it's worked. It's fairly transparent to our investors because we have really just operating with a hurdle rate and then a split of the profits past that. We've done the same thing for you know many years now and it works. So we don't see any need to really change it. So yeah, no, we've never done a fund. 
that's really not even on the horizon. We just like doing deals one at a time. And we don't want to be under pressure to uh, have to invest in anything. Which I feel like a fund, sometimes you could be like, well, man, I, I need to go deploy this money. It's like, what if you don't have a great opportunity or what if it's not the right time? Yeah. So we, we don't really have any of those burdens. And the tortoise, the tortoise and the hare, you guys are the tortoise. Yes. That's <laughs> good for you. Slow and steady, find good opportunities, aim for singles and doubles. And, and every once in a while, you know, you do better. But yeah, we're, we're not trying to uh, be a high flyer and go crazy with anything. I, I get that. What do you like about brick? Why is, why is brick good to buy? I mean, exterior maintenance is a, is a huge component of, of what happens when you're working on an asset. And all sorts of different stuff just from you know, seeing cedar siding. I mean, when you talk about residential cedar siding, maybe that was hot. I think it was hot in like the 60s, early 70s. And that stuff has been a disaster. You know, it, it's basically the standard operating procedure that was, hey, we got to take all the cedar siding off and we got to go fix it with hardy plank, board and banner, do something. Whereas brick, heck, there's buildings that are 100 plus years old. They just have brick side, brick exterior. And it's like, well, it's brick. What are you going to do? So it's, it's really just one less thing to worry about. That's what we like it. <laughs> I'm only laughing because it's sometimes like things that are, you reduce things down and, and to just simple things, but that makes so much sense. Uh, and it's just so, so logical. I mean, it, yeah, that's kind of what I thought you were going to say, but okay. Guys, I yeah, to- it's just, it's brick. It's been like, it's just going to be brick for a long time. Yeah, right. Exactly. And it's, and it's fine. Yeah. So, uh, what do you, how do you guys handle debt? Uh, so I'm a, a huge proponent. I mean, fixed debt is always the way we have gone on stuff. Uh, we don't like a whole lot of leverage. So our leverage is normally not, uh, not that high. We don't do any mes debt either. So we're kind of like, you got to have the, you got to have a full chunk of equity to buy something and then make sure you have fixed debt. For me, when I look at my investment horizon, you know, obviously, you know, rates over the past 10 years just kept going lower, lower, lower. And we're like, hey, eventually they have to go up. But uh, having fixed debt at least gives you some comfort of knowing you know, what's going to happen with your asset on the, on the cash flow. So it kind of removes that risk. And for the most part, you know, I don't have any debt that really matures until like 2026 20, uh, is really the earliest on about 100 assets. So everything is long-term fixed rate. And even we're doing deals right now, uh, rates may go down in the, in the future, but we're, we're buying stuff right now where we're getting... You no know, debts that's in the six percent, and as long as that can work with the deal, we'll still do long-term debt fixed at six percent. There are prepayment penalties on pretty much everything, and we are typically seeing just step-down prepayment penalties. So something like three percent, three percent in the first two years, it drops down to two percent and one percent. And then some of the banks we work with, if we refinance with that same bank, they they wipe out that prepay pen- penalty. So that's that's helpful. Yeah, I, I would say. And what what leverage are you typically buying them with? Uh, we're typically starting around seventy percent, and then we raise about you know if you look at the total capital stack being one hundred percent, we're normally like seventy percent debt, and then we have forty percent equity. So you've got this ten percent extra buffer when we look at the total cost of a deal, and then we're typically using amortizing loans, so we're paying that stuff off uh, and going down. Our typical leverage right now is around fifty five percent overall. Uh, loan to kind of our cost that's in it, not loan value. Okay, 125 assets, Dave. How does it get broken up? Like what percent are multifamily versus you said mobile home park, 
light industrial or you know office? How do, what does it look like? Yeah, so probably the largest chunk is really the residential, which combines mobile homes and apartments into into kind of one asset class. You know, that's at least half of what we have. And then outside of that, we have asset classes we look at. One, I mean, they're all similar buildings, but we have tenant-based stuff. So we have medical, a good chunk that is medical, and then another good chunk that is this flex office style. So those are our two other biggest segments uh, within the business. And they could be a very similar building. I mean, we have some exactly the same buildings, but if there's a medical tenant versus a flex tenant, you know, it kind of goes into a different bucket there. So that's about that combined is about another forty percent, and then we have about ten percent of our assets that are in uh, single tenant net lease buildings, which have been a really a great asset class over the past four or five years as a way to diversify uh, ten thirty one gains and generate uh, current cash flow. I see. On the on the fifty percent that's mobile home parks apartments, let's consider that a universe. How much? What percent are apartments versus mobile home parks? Uh, it's probably about eighty percent apartments and twenty percent mobile homes within that. And we've really we've sold a lot of mobile homes over the past three years that we, we've exited. We started buying those by six years ago, and then recently have started exiting them. As the, I mean, the valuations and attractiveness within the mobile home space has been uh, exceedingly high over the past two years. There, I mean, there was certainly interest six years ago, but not like really the past two years have been. So we've exited a lot of our mobile home parks simply because the valuations and the cap rates have come down so much on those. Yeah. I guess along those lines, like you're saying, it seems like there's no secrets anymore. That's not the words you used, but you know, like you said, mobile home parks, you know, six years ago, kind of nobody knew about them. Not nobody, but you know what I mean? Now they do. Are there any asset classes, I guess? you have in your sites that you think might be still relatively undiscovered and where there's going to be great opportunity or is it kind of is everything kind of uh, gotten discovered? I mean, I, I don't do anything that's in like the ultra specialty asset classes where you look at RV parks or marinas or some of these more like, hey, these are challenging to operate and execute, but there are great returns there. I mean, what I'm thinking right now is more what real estate opportunity is most rife for transition? Because when there's transition, there's... Va- there the ability to create value or find a new way to use a piece of real estate. And the biggest, I mean, the biggest thing I see right now is just office in general, that there's going to be a lot of transition with that. These spaces aren't just going to go away and disappear. So someone's going to find a use for them. I don't know if I am necessarily going to be like the leader of how do you transition this stuff, but uh, it's certainly something we're looking at from saying, how can you reuse a lot of this space? Uh, and that's happened many times over, you know, that in the history of real estate, that's continued, that continues to happen. The one we talk about a lot is is just malls. You know, if you look at the '80s when malls were ultra popular, you're building these massive indoor spaces, and then the 2000s hit, and they're like, "Hey, we want to turn this inside out, and we're going to have people walk outside to outside facing stores." You know, it kind of just turned the mall, you know, completely inside out. Which the groups that were able to execute that transition within a mall, they've done very well. Uh, I think that'll just happen with. Office next. I, I don't necessarily know what it's going to be, but there's going to be a good amount of opportunity to create value in that space over the coming probably five to ten years yeah. as that kind of reshapes itself. Somebody will figure it out that's smarter than me. Yeah, I, and it's still. I mean, real estate's a very local. I mean, real estate's a local business, so it's going to be different in you know in different markets. In the south, it's a lot easier to be outside than it is in the north. So you know they might have a different approach to it. 
uh, and certainly different cities have different levels of access and population growth. So it's going to be different everywhere. But it's certainly whatever market you are in, ripe for opportunity to find a creative way to reuse the space. Dave, what would you say are are the most important lessons or lesson that you've learned? I think anytime you're looking at doing something, and for me, what was most important was feeling comfortable that I knew how to do it. So I was much more comfortable making a decision when I could get in there and try it out once on my own and make sure I at least understood, hey, what are we doing? How does this work? Let's proceed. And what that inherently means is that you know decisions are made a little bit slower. You get a, you get a, a better understanding of what's at stake, you know, what could go wrong, and then you make and then you make that decision. I think there's a lot of desire right now for speed to get wealthy or speed to make decisions that you know everything's going to work out and it just doesn't work that way. So I think patience. And you know, patience is a big part of that, but also just wanting to understand how the nuts and bolts work before you make a decision. Yeah, I get it. And I get it because I've gone into things where I didn't and it cost me dearly. What, what would you say, Dave, this is the hardest question that I'm going to ask you today. Yeah. And, and it's this, what is something people don't know about you? Oh, uh, that don't know about me? Yeah. Man, well, people that know me pretty well know that I'm, I like to find area, like when I think about things, I want to find the gray area of any subject, of anything that I'm doing. And that could be where I'm going in life or something that's happening on an investment. I want to get to the point where you're kind of like uncomfortable with how things are going, more to just see what is there? How am I going to respond to that? How do, how do people respond to situations where you have unknowns? I find that very intriguing. And that's where I like to try and spend as much of my time as I can. You can't always live in that kind of complete unknown area or life would be total chaos. But I like trying to find that in anything I'm doing. That's interesting because I think most people are the exact opposite and, and, and get uncertainty stresses them out and it confuses them and they can't deal with it. Yeah. So I yeah, it's funny. I go ahead. I like, I like road trips. So I go on a lot of road trips and, and I'll sit there with my wife and I'll be like, Hey, Sarah, let's find, like we can find something along the way. She's like, no, let's just get there. I was like, no, 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 no. We're gonna find. We're gonna find somewhere. To-. She's like, no, we're not. We're gonna get there, and uh, it's kind of that desire of like, hey, what's down that road? Can we learn something over there? Can we see something? Yeah. Uh, well, you know that that it would be a recipe. One of the reasons you're probably successful because it's often it's the stuff that you you know you don't know what you don't know, and it's the stuff you don't know that will kill you, which is what you've been describing here for the last few minutes. Yeah. So yeah. that level of curiosity is a healthy thing to have. Well, hey, if somebody wants to engage uh, with you further, find out more about Greenleaf, you invest, whatever the heck it is, how would they do that? Yeah. So, I mean, best is our websites, greenleafmgmt.com uh, or Greenleaf Management. We're here in Atlanta. Uh, or I'm on LinkedIn. That's probably the easiest way to get in touch with me. I have all my contact information there too. Got it. Well, Dave, I hope to do this maybe a year from now again, and we'll kind of survey where we're at, what the year was like, and um, you know where you're at then. I very much appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you very much. It was great being on the show. Enjoy talking with you. Yeah, you too. Bye. 